Welcome to Mea Online, a podcast of Hebrew College. Learn more and sign up for our intensive courses at www.hebrewcollege.edu slash Online. Mea is spelled M-E-A-H. Today, an extended episode from the Mea Online course, Journey Through the Bible, with Professor Mark Brettler from Duke University, in which we offer a deep dive look at the creation of Israel, Exodus, and Mount Sinai. Welcome to Module 2 of Mea Online, Journey Through the Bible. The second module is titled, The Creation of Israel and Exodus and Sinai. In this module, we're going to examine various misconceptions about Genesis and Exodus being historical documents. And in general, we're going to discuss how the term history might be applied to Torah literature and to biblical literature more generally. We're going to explore a variety of texts in Genesis and Exodus, but we will focus on two of them. On Genesis chapter 22, the binding of Isaac, called the Akedah in Hebrew, as well as on the plague narratives in the book of Exodus. In general, I am going to introduce two terms which are going to be relevant for the rest of this course. The term synchronic, and the term diachronic. These represent two fundamentally different ways of understanding biblical texts, which were compiled over time. Diachronic study takes a historical perspective and means to study something over time, while a synchronic perspective is more of a snapshot And even though it might recognize that a particular text developed over time, it studies it at a single time as a final completed document. Thus, if I were to study, as I did in the last segments, Genesis chapters 1 to 3 as two distinct texts written at different times, that is engaging in a diachronic study of those texts. However, if I either do not know or choose to ignore the fact that Genesis chapters 1 through 3 is comprised of two distinct texts by different authors, written at different times, reflecting different ideologies, I would call that a synchronic understanding of Genesis 1 through 3. So before I go to the rest of the book of Genesis, which unfortunately I cannot cover in tremendous detail, and then certain aspects concerning the book of Exodus, for a moment I would just like to talk about Genesis 1 through 3 in its larger context of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which were often grouped together as the stories which are before the choosing of Abraham, which seems to happen in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1. In other words, stories in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which are more universalistic rather than particularistic in their perspective. What I'm going to do now is a synchronic reading, a snapshot reading, of these 11 chapters rather than a diachronic 
a historical reading of those chapters and just explain for a moment how these chapters function as a preamble of Genesis chapters 12 and following. It is possible to read these chapters as a succession of misdeeds or sins accomplished by humanity, which lead to the choosing of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Indeed, Genesis chapters 2 and 3 talk about the eating of the tree and banishment from Eden, sin or misdeed number one. Genesis chapters 6 through 8 deal with the flood narrative and talk about either the corruption or the violence that people did, which led up to the necessity of God bringing a flood to destroy almost all of humanity. That is strike number two. Strike number three is dealt with in Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. Again, the exact meaning of the story and the nature of the sin is not fully clear from the biblical account, but that le leads to further punishment, namely the dispersion of humanity. As a result of that, God in some sense may have given up in humanity as a whole, and these first 11 chapters looked at synchronically help to explain why Abraham needs to be chosen, which will be the focus of what I'm going to talk about next. As I mentioned in the previous segment, one of the foci of this particular module is whether or not the books of Genesis and Exodus are history. History has certain rules in terms of causality. So for example, if you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, it is as a result of the buildup of the Russians of certain installations on Cuba that America acted in a particular way, blockaded Cuba, and so forth. There's a certain notion of what X causes Y. It might seem that the Bible also has certain notions of causality, but this particular slide reflects the notion that those biblical notions of causality are very different than those which are normative in historical doctrine. So here, let me take one example from the previous module, one example from this module, and develop this into an idea which I call name causality by which I mean, and think about how different this is from historical causality, that the name of a person, according to these biblical narrators, has a real impact on what they do. So let me start with the top half of the slide with Noah, who in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, is named Noah. So his Hebrew name is Noah, based on the verb nacham, zeyinachamenu, to provide relief. Now think about the Noah story. The Noah story, in that story, first of all, that same root or set of roots, nacham and Noah, indeed do reappear. In Genesis 6-6, they appear when God regretted that he made man on the earth, and his heart was saddened. 
It's as if, and think of this in terms of real historical causality, God sees Noah, Noah, and it makes him, God, Nacham, regrets. Furthermore, in terms of the problematics of this name, in terms of normal historical causality, how indeed does Noah bring relief? Take a look at the verses that I have cited from Genesis 9, verses 20 and 21. He brings relief by being the first person to plant a vineyard. How does this story in chapter 9 possibly connect to the reason his father gave him that name in chapter 5? Thus, chronology and causality is very confused here. You see this type of confusion or these different sets of norms with the name of Jacob as well. He is named Jacob in Genesis chapter 25, verse 26, because he is holding on to the heel, a cave of his brother Esau. Thus the name Jacob, Hebrew Yaakov, means heel holder or supplanter, because you hold someone's heel to pull them back. And indeed, Jacob's name motivates a lot of this narrative. Indeed, the bottom text that I have cited there, his brother Esau says, was he then named Jacob, Yaakov, that he might supplant me, Vayaakveni, these two times. So again, you see how a name, Yaakov, is connected to various dramatic actions within the story, namely supplanting and heel-holding. This is not the way real history functions. Which raises the broader question, how should we characterize this material in Genesis chapters 12 and following, which is very typically called patriarchal history? You read, if you had an opportunity, in ancient Israel, Kyle McCarter, a very fine scholar from Hopkins, talk about this material not as history, but as reflecting the self-understanding of the community. It may have a kernel of history, but that is not its primary function. It is written at a later period as a way in which the community, the early Israelite community, explains itself and explains its relationship with various neighbors, such as Esau, which represents Edom, Israel's neighbor, to its immediate south. Thus, the people who are mentioned, such as Isaac or Jacob, are not real people, but they typically function as eponyms, a term defined at the bottom of this slide. I would like to focus for a moment on what is called the Jacob Cycle, the series of small episodes which are stitched together to form a narrative about Jacob. And here I will be doing a synchronic reading of this material. In other words, I will not be sensitive to the fact, which is historically true from a diachronic perspective, that different stories have been stitched, have been stitched together, but I will look 
at how the story means and what the story means once these various stories have been stitched together. The story starts in Genesis chapter 25 at the end there, with Jacob being born holding on to the heel of his brother. Toward the end of that chapter, Jacob, sell, Jacob buys from his brother Esau the bichorah, the birthright. Then I skip a chapter to chapter 27, when uh, Esau is very, very tired. Esau says that Jacob has taken away his birthright, his bichorah, but has also taken away his blessing, his biracha. I remind you, this is after Esau sells Jacob this birthright for some red lentil stew. Please listen to this pun between the Hebrew words bichorah, birthright, and biracha, blessing, which are very clearly intertwined in this story. Well, Jacob has stolen his brother's blessing. He has tricked his brother. And as the next few entries on the slide show, he is going to be tricked himself. He is tricked when Laban, his father-in-law, switches wives on him. He does some tricks with Laban and his father, namely his father-in-law, or excuse me, Laban is his brother-in-law. The father-in-law is deceased with Laban concerning switching sheep and sheep colors. And as a result, he is finally forced to flee. He is then tricked in chapter after Rachel steals the idols from Laban and Jacob says, oh, the person with whom the idols can be found, that person shall be killed. He is tricked by his wife, as you see in chapter 31, verse 32 at the bottom of the slide. Then all of this tricking comes together in chapter 32 and chapter 33. At the end of chapter 32, Jacob has a wrestling match with a man, the Hebrew word is ish, who ends up being an angel, some sort of semi-divine figure. And at that point, Jacob's name, Yaakov, is switched to the name Israel, Israel. At that point, the theme of tricking and ye shall be tricked largely ends. And following that, you come to a resolution of this section of the book of Genesis. Again, you might not realize this from the English, because the English, dealing the, the reconciliation between Jacob and his brother Esau, has Jacob saying, please accept my present, which has been brought to you. There, the Hebrew word for present is biracha. So to bring this together, this whole cycle has a lovely structure of Jacob stealing Esau's bracha at the beginning, returning Esau's bracha at the end, and has as its major theme, tricking and ye shall be tricked. Jacob continually tricks Esau, he is tricked by Esau and then others. And finally, 
Only at the end, only in chapter 33 is this all resolved when Jacob's name, Yaakov, is changed to the name Israel, Israel. Another element that I'd like you to understand in terms of how these stories are structured is their symbolic element. And in order to appreciate this, please remind yourselves of the history in the first module where I talked about the United Kingdom, the divided monarchy, and the demise of the Northern Kingdom by Assyria in 722. And please remember that Joseph is a Northern tribe, while Judah, from whom King David descended, is the prime Southern tribe. If you remember this, you can see how many of the stories in the last quarter of the book of Genesis really deal with conflicts between Joseph and Judah. You see, for example, in Genesis chapter 44, verse 18, you see that Judah is the fourth of the children of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Yet, even though he is the fourth of the brothers, he has primary roles, as you can see from these verses in Genesis 44, 18 and 46, 28. Also quite remarkably, I remind you that when the brothers think of saving Joseph, first Reuben tries to save him in 37, 22. Please take a look at that text. But he is not successful and it is only Judah who succeeds in saving him in 3726. Furthermore, many of these chapters toward the end of the book of Genesis deal with how Judah, the fourth child, became the most important one. So Genesis chapter 34, often called the Rape of Dinah, even though that is not a fully accurate title for that material, shows how sons number two and three of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, become disqualified. Chapter 35, verse 22, in a single verse, shows how Reuben became disqualified by sleeping with his father's concubine and Jacob finding out about that. Thus, these stories, and there are some reverberations of 3522 in the material in Genesis chapter 39, the so-called blessings of Jacob, but there you see these are not totally blessings, but Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are cursed, really deal with how Judah, the fourth son, became the first primary and predominant son. Stated differently, these stories are not about figures of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, but are about Judah, about the kingdom of Judah, about the southern kingdom, and are predominantly interested in explaining why that, the southern kingdom, is the most predominant kingdom. Final observation about these stories. Many of them engage in what is called prefiguration of telling a later story 
hinting ahead at it. Please take a moment and look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. And look in particular at the words that are printed here in yellow. A famine in the land, going down to Egypt, encounter with Pharaoh, being enriched, and being kicked out of Egypt. These should certainly remind you of the Exodus in the book of Exodus. Stated differently, these chapters are prefiguring what is happening later, and the image of Abraham in these chapters is he is a type, he is a ex general expression of what is going to happen to the Israelites later. This is a story of the Exodus in a nutshell. It is not history of Abraham as an individual, but prefiguration of the later history that is going to be narrated in the book of Exodus. In the previous segment, I suggested that the book of Genesis should be divided into two sections, a section which is more universal in chapters 1 through 11, and a section which is focused more on Abraham and his family in chapters 12 through 50. And this is a way that many scholars indeed do divide the book of Genesis, where the first 11 chapters are called the primeval myth, and chapters 12 through 50 are called patriarchal history. I would like to contest this division. Indeed, chapter 12 does contain Abraham with a famous statement from God, Lech Lecha, but now if you read carefully, you see that Abraham has actually already begun his voyage at the end of chapter 11. So there is no need to distinction between chapters 11 and chapter 11 in preceding and chapters 12 and following. Furthermore, chapters 12 through 50 are neither patriarchal nor are they history. I talked in the last segment about certain problems of understanding this world as the world portrayed in this text as historical. But indeed, if you read through chapters 12 through 50, you will see that in addition to the fact that further patriarchs cannot be produced without matriarchs, in many cases, women have very important roles. I think of the role of Sarai Sarah, I think of the role of Rebecca in making sure that it is Isaac rather than Esau gets the correct birthright. And I think of Genesis chapter 38, in which Tamar plays a very significant role. Therefore, it is inappropriate to call this material patriarchal history because both of those terms are wrong. Many scholars presented Genesis 12 through 50 as an obstacle story. I have this delineated here with the pluses and minuses in parentheses, where the minuses represent various obstacles that the ancestors suggest. The story begins in a very promising way, the beginning of chapter 12, where the two main elements of the promise given to Abram are of progeny and land. 
This is threatened at the end of chapter 12, when Abram and Sarai find themselves in Egypt, outside of the land of Canaan, and Sarai is taken into Abram's harem, and thus the promise of progeny is threatened. These obstacles continue. So you might think that the blessing is going to be accomplished through Abram's nephew, Lot. But as chapter 13, 11 makes very clear, Lot chooses not to reside in the land of Canaan, but to reside in, the, in Sodom and Gomorrah. A war follows in chapter 14, a war from which Abram gains very little, after which the promise is reinforced, again, encouragement in chapter 15. So you might then think that the promise is going to be fulfilled not through Sarai, but through Hagar, through Hagar, Sarai's handmaiden. But as soon as that happens, Hagar is expelled. Chapter 17, another up. The promise is re renewed again in relation to circumcision. But as soon as that happens, or a few chapters later, Sarah is again lost in a second wife-sister story, a parallel from a different source to the one you have in chapter 12. Finally, chapter 21, a son is born to Sarah and is named Isaac. Then comes chapter 22, which I'll focus on in a further in one of the next segments, namely the binding of Isaac, where that son who is born is almost killed. Ah, then Sarah dies in chapter 23. Abram finally buys some real estate, the cave of Machpelah. But let's think of it. I think this in some ways is ironic. Abraham is supposed to have the whole land and he has to buy a burial plot. Has the promise really been fulfilled? And you really have to wonder if the verse dealing with the end of the life of Abraham in 24.1 is to be read in a straightforward way or ironically. Abraham was old, advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. I would just like to ask you, would you like to be blessed in all things in the way that Abraham has been blessed in all things by the beginning of Genesis chapter 24? And to my mind, here is the really big question about this section in the book of Genesis. I have zigzagged for obstacles and encouragements. If you read the story as an obstacle story, you read it with the zigzags on the left, ending with an obstacle. But what I would really like to suggest is that much of Genesis chapters 12 through 50 should not be read as an obstacle story, but should be read as an encouragement story or as a myth of encouragement. For Genesis does not end with a promise fulfilled, but it ends with several promises that the promise is about to be fulfilled. So in Genesis 46.4, God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will also bring you up. 
And the book actually ends on a positive note with making Joseph swear to his children, when God has taken notice of you, you shall carry up my bones from here, namely from Egypt to the land of Israel. Thus, even though the book does not end with a promise fulfilled, it ends with further recollections of the promise and thus, I think this section of the book of Genesis should not be understood as history, but should be understood as a myth, more specifically as a myth of encouragement. Most of the previous segments have looked at large swaths of biblical text. I'd like to stick back for a moment and take a look at a single biblical text in some detail. I'll be doing that in this segment and in the segment that follows. I've chosen what is within Judaism when one of the most important chapters in the book of Genesis, the beginning of Genesis chapter 22, called the Akedah, which means the binding, namely the binding of Isaac. What I'd like to do for this segment is to read through sections of this text in English, making certain observations, giving you a sense of certain elements that you might miss when reading this text very quickly. It begins, Some time afterward. The Hebrew is, which translates literally, after these things. Please remember that. It will be important for understanding the next segment. Sometime afterward, or after these things, God put Abraham to the test. Note, I do not believe that the Bible believes that its God is omniscient. I think this is a real test. God wants to see how Abraham is going to respond. The rest of the verse, God calls upon Abraham, and Abraham answers, in the biblical equivalent of yes. There is no biblical Hebrew word for yes, and thus here I am, hineni, reflects yes in the English language. Verse two in your translation really is in some ways inaccurate. Let me translate a little bit better. And he, God, said, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. Isaac is at the end of the phrase, and what are you to do with that son? Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. I'll just put in parentheses here. God says that he will point out the particular place where Isaac is to be offered. Does God ever do that in this section? Verse 3. So early next morning, Abraham saddled his ass and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And again, if you have an opportunity to read the article, My Mises by Eric Auerbach, which is part of this unit, you will understand this point at greater depth. The Bible typically does not express emotions directly, but it does through various actions which are narrated. So it doesn't say, it doesn't express Abraham's angst, nor does it say about Abraham, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do this. But note the way verse three begins. Abraham does not tarry. He does this action early in the morning. 
But also note when it narrates what it took, what Abraham took with him, his two his ass, his two servants, and his son Isaac. I think expressing some reluctance on going ahead with this because he's waiting at the end. Taking Isaac is the last action that he accomplishes. And again, he takes these various things at the rest of the verse, and he moves on. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place from afar. Huh. I'll just ask you, I don't have a great answer for this. How did Abraham know that he had found the place? After all, as I pointed out earlier, God said that he's to sacrifice Isaac on the, on the heights that I will point out to you. This is not pointed out. Again, going back to Auerbach and his famous phrase, this passage is, quote, fraught with background. Very little that we would expect is foregrounded. Much of it is in the background. Verse 5, Abraham tells his servants to stay put. And he says, the boy and I will go up there. We will worship and we will return to you. I actually think a better translation of this Hebrew would be, and may we return to you. I don't think that Abraham is lying here, but is expressing a wish that they will both come back together. Verse 6, Abraham is putting the wood on his son Isaac. Abraham is carrying the dangerous stuff, the firestone and the knife. I think this suggests that Isaac is a little kid. He's too young to be trusted with a big knife for slaughter and with a firestone. But nevertheless, the end of verse 6, the two of them walked off together. Verse 7 is remarkable both for what it says and for what it does not say. Then Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he answered, Yes, my son. And he said, here's the firestone in the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? Isaac is clearly getting a little uncomfortable here for good reason. But please note how the narrator emphasizes the terror in this text by using as many times as possible words like father and son in this particular verse. In other words, it's not some unknown kid that Abraham is taking, but Abraham the father is taking his son Isaac, who is able to ask about the firestone in the wood, but I think is too nervous to ask about the knife. He can't even get the word knife out of his mouth. And in verse 8, Abraham provides a non-answer answer. Oh, may God provide. Yet nevertheless, even after Abraham recites that non-answer answer and Isaac hears it, the end of verse 8, and the two of them walked on together. This is a refrain appearing twice in this episode. I'm not going to read all of the following verses, but one scholar I think has brilliantly pointed out that verse 9 makes it sound like Abraham is doing all of these activities in his sleep. It's as if he is sleepwalking, because that is the only way he could get himself to do these horrible things, culminating with binding Isaac on the altar on the wood, 
verse 10, Abraham picks up the knife. By the way, the Hebrew word is ma'achaletz, which is not a small knife, but it's used rarely in other places in the Bible. It's a big knife, big enough as in its use in the book of Judges to, mis to dismember a person. So please imagine that as you try to visualize this narrative and think of it as I believe it is a text of terror. And at the very last moment, verse 11, and quite strikingly, it's not God who, counts out, who calls out, but an angel of the Lord who calls out, doubling Abraham's name, Abraham, Abraham. Think about that. We're going to return to that in the next segment. And Abraham answers, Hineni, yes, here I am, the same word used in the beginning. And emphatically, this angel needs to say, do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. See the doubling that you have there, for now I know that you fear God and so forth. In other words, what I said earlier, that God is not imagined as omniscient, is clearly the case here. For now I know. And then luckily, verse 13, when Abraham looks up, he finds a ram. He offers that ram in place of his son. And then in verse 14, names this place Adonai Yireh which means either the Lord will see or the Lord will provide, or as it says at the end of this verse, on the mount of the Lord there is vision. Please note, this text never says that the temple is going to be built on Mount Moriah, but according to later Jewish tradition, found first in the fourth century biblical book, the book of Chronicles, Mount Moriah is associated with Jerusalem and with the temple site in Jerusalem. And if that is standing behind these few verses and known by it, then part of what this section, the binding of Isaac is doing, is offering an etiology, a story of origin, explaining why the Jerusalem temple needs to be built in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Namely, it is a place where the first sacrifice, first significant sacrifice by an ancestor was given, where Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering to the Lord. So that is one function the story has. And please note, this story never says or never intimates that its purpose is to abolish human sacrifice. The Bible talks about human sacrifice in other places, in some cases saying that it is detestable, in some cases suggesting that it was permissible, done, and efficacious. Contrary to what most people were told in Hebrew school, this is not a polemic against human sacrifice. Had it been so, the text would have clearly said at this point, Abraham, thank you very much for being willing to sacrifice your son. I will never ask anybody to do that again. That is not what happens. Instead, what does happen in the following verses, in verses 15 through 18, Abraham is blessed in the same way he is blessed at the beginning of chapter 12. 
in the beginning of chapter 12, it is an initial blessing. Here it is a blessing at the end of the Abraham cycle. The contents of the blessing are more or less the same. Abraham is going to have lots of descendants. Those descendants are going to control the land of Israel, and other nations will bless themselves by Abraham. The story comes to a conclusion quite anticlimactically in verse 19. And this is a remarkable difference between modern ways of telling stories and biblical ways of telling stories. You expect some giant climax after Isaac is almost sacrificed. Instead, verse 19, Abraham then returned to his servants and they departed together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. I will leave you, but not answer for you, the most obvious question. And where is Isaac? In the previous segment, we took a look at Genesis chapter 22 and saw what its meaning likely was within the biblical period, its historical critical or contextual meaning. In this segment, I would like to take a look at how this segment was interpreted within Judaism, which would be a very broad topic. So more specifically, I would like to take a look at how it was interpreted by two of the best known medieval Jewish commentators, Rashi and Abraham Ibn Ezra. I encourage you to take a look at the essays in the back of the Jewish Study Bible. Starting with pages 1,833, you will find a set of essays that deal with the Jewish interpretation of the Bible. One of those essays deals more specifically with the medieval Jewish interpretation of the Bible. And there you could find more information about both Rashi and Ibn Ezra. Rashi, Rabbi Solomon or Shlomo, son of Isaac, French, from ten, lived from 1040 to 1105, was the great reader's digest of medieval Judaism, who digested or compiled and summarized much of rabbinic literature in his great commentaries on the Hebrew Bible. So if you follow along, you will see that one of the things that he does, as I mentioned in the last segment, this text opens, sometime afterward, more literally of after these things, Rashi fills this in as if asking after which things. So I quote, after these things, the phrase after these things is interpreted by some of our rabbis in the Talmud as referring to the words of the Satan who accused Abraham before God and so forth. Please read the rest of this commentary and this will make more sense to you in several modules after you have read the book of Job, and you will see the way in which Rashi, following the rabbis, has fit in the beginning of the book of Job, which deals with God and Satan, and has transposed that from the book of Job to Genesis chapter 22, all because after these things needs to mean something very specific. Every word of the Bible is super infused with meaning. 
Moving on, as I mentioned in Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, the text says, Abraham, Abraham. For Rashi, this reflects words of affection, as if we might say the name of a child or a lover twice when we speak kindly to them. Finally, in Rashi, in terms of duplications, take a good look at Rashi's gloss to Genesis chapter 22, verse where there is a duplication in the text. Do not lay your hand upon the lad, nor do anything to him. And as Rashi continues, the first phrase is a prohibition against slaying Isaac. At this, Abraham said, in that case, I've come here for nothing. I just want to wound him and get a little blood. Hence the second phrase, do not do anything to him. Do not even make a blemish in him. In Hebrew, this makes a little bit more sense because the phrase, do not nor do anything to him, the word for anything is meuma, which sounds just like the Hebrew word for a blemish or a wound, a moom. So please hear notes. And again, I go back to what I said in the very first module about Spinoza, the way in which before Spinoza, the text was read in very different ways, not as a natural text. For Rashi, following the rabbis, this text is super infused with meaning and every duplication must be significant. Contrast the commentary of Abraham Ibn Ezra, who mostly lived in Spain, is representative of what is called the Spanish School of Biblical Interpretation, and is much less of a Talmudist and much more of a rationalist. I will not read his comments for Genesis 22:1, but I hope you will, and you will see how he unapologetically says that this is a test, a real test, because God does not know what is going to happen in the future. I just want to comment for a second on his gloss on Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, just to show you how different it is from Rashi's gloss. For Rashi, the duplication of name shows the great parental love by Abraham to Isaac. Abraham, even Ezra, much more prosaically says, Abraham, Abraham, twice because he is rushed. This is as if I was walking in some city with my city with my children. My younger child is named Ezra. I saw a car about to turn into the sidewalk. I grabbed him and I said, Ezra, Ezra. Abraham Ibn Ezra is understanding this verse much more rationalistically than Rashi is. Again, I really hope you'll have an opportunity to read the essay on medieval Jewish interpretation in the Biblical Study Bible, as well as the notes in the Jewish Study Bible. And there you will see how many of these notes give you a sense of the tremendous range of biblical inter interpretation that you can find within medieval Jewish tradition. I would now like to move from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. And in particular, I'd like to look at various narrative sections of Exodus from the beginning of the book 
from Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 24, omitting some of the legal sections which I will come back to in the following module. I would like to remind you that there are significant problems of understanding Exodus's history in the same way that there are significant problems in, in understanding Genesis as history. So for example, the map that you see on this slide often has the legend, the root of the Exodus. Well, that sounds great, as long as you realize that the Exodus may not be historical. And therefore, this rubric is not really the root of the Exodus, but is really talking about the root of the Exodus as a literary phenomenon, as you might reconstruct it from the book of Exodus. That is actually usually what not what most scholars believe when they talk about the root of the Exodus. Thus, we really need to ask in a serious way, is the Exodus history? And here, I would like to deal with two quotes which talk about biblical history and the nature of the Exodus as history. My teacher, Nahum Sarna, who wrote the chapter dealing with the Exodus in the book Ancient Israel, edited by Herschel Shanks, someone you might know as the publisher of the Biblical Archaeological Review, which is a popular magazine dealing with biblical archaeology, very well worth subscribing to and reading. In the chapter on the Exodus, Sarna notes that these events should not be understood as history, but should be understood as, quote, theological didactic interpretations of selected historical events. I'd like to tease out certain elements of this particular definition. First of all, he is noting correctly that the Bible is not interested in representative history, but is interested only in selected historical events. Secondly, he is noting correctly to my mind that the Bible is not even primarily interested in the, those events, but is interested in their theological didactic interpretation or interpretations, because often the same events will be interpreted in more than one way by more than one biblical author in more than one biblical passage. Thus, history, the events themselves, are not primary. Something similar is said by one of the most influential books of Jewish studies in the second part of the 20th, 20th century by the Harvard and then Columbia professor Yerushalmi in a book called Zachor, Studies in Jewish History and Jewish Memory. The Hebrew word Zachor is a type of imperative, which means remember. And the name of the book is based on the fact that several times within the Bible, people are mandated, or Israel is mandated, Zachor, remember. Remember the Exodus. Remember what the tribe of Amalek did to you when you left the land of Egypt, and so forth. But there he states correctly and provocatively, if the Greeks are the fathers of history, the Jews are the fathers of meaning in history. Note how this nicely overlaps with what Sarna says. Meaning 
and theological didactic interpretation. But I would like to go one step further. I think that the ancient Israelites were so interested in meaning of events, they often created or significantly tampered with what actually happened in the past in order to create a meaning that would be constructive for their society. I would like to conclude this section by looking at the first few chapters of the book of Exodus and returning to something that I said earlier concerning Genesis chapter 12 verses 10 through 20, that often biblical stories should not be taken literally, but they are typological and that they prefigure or pretell something that happens later. So first, let me talk about the life, the early life of Moses. The name Moses is connected in the narrative to water. His name is Moshe Kimin Hamayim Mishitihu, because I drew him from the water. Well, of course, water with the crossing of the Red or the Reed Sea is going to be very important. As a youngster, he's a shepherd because in a sense, he is going to be the shepherd of the people of Israel. He first fights with a foreigner in the same way that he is going to fight with the Egyptians. That is followed by a struggle between him and an Israelite. Well, of course, if you keep reading the rest of the book of Exodus and much of Numbers and Deuteronomy, the fourth and the fifth books of the Bible, there, Moses is often struggling and contending with his Israelite brothers and sisters. He has a revelation at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. What you might miss reading the Bible in English is that this is not the generic word for a bush, but the Hebrew word is sneh, which is almost identical to the word Sinai or Sinai. In other words, the revelation at the bush, at the sneh, prefigures the revelation of the Torah at Sinai. Moses takes off his sandals, experiences tremendous danger before God in front of this burning bush in the same way that all Israel will experience that danger later in Exodus chapter 19. And the revelation, Moses is given a revelation of God's special name in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, just as all of Israel will be given a revelation of the Torah, or at least the Decalogue or Ten Commandments, later in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. I would like to conclude this particular segment by looking at the discussion within the Bible about the special name of God. It is called the Tetragrammaton by scholars, which means the four-letter name. It has the four letters, Yud, He, Vav, He. Traditionally within Judaism, it is not pronounced, and instead a surrogate, a substitution name, Adonai, and which means master or lord, and later simply Hashem, the name, is used instead of this tetragrammaton. Its exact meaning is not certain, but some sort of etymology is given for it in Exodus 3.14. And God said to Moses, Ehyeh 
asher ehyeh. This is from the same verb as the tetragrammaton, but in the third person, I'm sorry, excuse me, in the first person, rather than the tetragrammaton's third person. And it means, I am that I am, I will be that I will be. It may very well express divine imminence, namely God is with you, I am that I am, or if it is read as a future, it expresses the notion that this, the, imminent, the imminence of God will always be Israel. And this, at least according to the biblical account, is the meaning of the Tetragrammaton, the special four-letter name of God revealed in Exodus chapter 3, which prefigures, as I noted a moment ago, the giving of the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Torah in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. I would now like to move from the account of the burning bush at the very beginning of the book of Exodus to the account of the Ten Plagues, and I'd like to return to two terms which I introduced in the previous module, synchronic and diachronic, namely understanding a text as a whole, synchronically, versus understanding its composition history, the diachronic study of a text. And here, I would like you to each do an exercise. You have the text as part of this module of Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 to 24, in Everett Fox's very literal translation in the Shachan Bible, The Five Books of Moses. This text, these 11 verses, are comprised of two complete sources which have been interwoven one with another. I'm going to ask you to pause this video, to pull out that text, and using the criteria that I have on the bottom of this slide, to try to disentangle this particular text so that you are left with not one narrative, but two narratives, each of which is relatively complete and reads very well. Now that you have completed this exercise, I would like to talk about various criteria that I hope you used to disentangle the sources. I hope you saw that different words might be used for the same thing. Is Pharaoh's heart heavy or is Pharaoh stubborn? I hope you look to see where different narratives break off and where they are continued. I hope you saw that there is a distinction on whether or not the staff is Moses' staff or is Aaron's staff. And more generally, number four, 
I hope you saw that in some of these, Aaron is acting with Moses, while in some of the verses, Moses is acting alone. Even more significantly, in Numbers 5 and 6, I hope you saw that in some of these verses, the plague is affecting only the Nile, while in other verses, the plague is affecting all of the water of Egypt. Therefore, in one plague, you have only stinking fishies in the Nile, while in the other plague, you have blood absolutely everywhere. If you have not noted these points, why don't you take a break from this video, go back to the biblical text, and see how you might redo your source division based on these particular criteria. When you are done, please return to the video. And here are the answers. On this slide and on the following slide, I have two complete sources. One is in regular font, the other is in bolded italic font. Take a look and see if my answer is the same as yours. And you will see that if you divide the sources this way, as noted in this slide and in the previous slide, you will have two complete internally consistent sources, each of which narrates the blood plague. If you've had a chance to look at how to read the Jewish Bible, there there is a broader discussion of the various sources that comprise the Torah or the Pentateuch. And you will realize that the slide that is in bold italic is P or the priestly source for at least two reasons. That is the source in which Aaron is present. Aaron is the first priest. All the priests or Kohanim are descended from Aaron, and it would not be surprising that the priestly source is the one in which Aaron is present, while he would be absent in the non-priestly source. Furthermore, the priestly source is very interested in details. That is the source which, for example, talks about all the different types of waterways that you have in the Nile, from the Nile to other water bodies to Nile canals. That type of listing in details defines the priestly source, while the other source does not have those same sort of details and structures. To summarize, the blood plague, or more properly, the blood plagues, they both deal with blood, but that is pretty much where the similarities end. In the P plague, it is blood. In the J plague, the blood is not the main point of the plague. The blood kills the fish, and it's the stinking fish which is the main point. Thus, as strange as this might sound, in the J narrative, in the Yahwistic narrative, this is really a stinky fish plague. 
In J, no Aaron. In P, Moses and Aaron. In J, the plague on the Nile only. In P, the plague in every single water body. The Egyptians only appear in one of these accounts and so forth. So if you look at them side by side before they have been redacted or meshed together, you will really see that the details are very different. I'd like to spend a moment on this quite complex but important slide. This slide has three rows, P, J, and question mark. And it shows you the plague narrative as it appears in each of these three sources. You can see that in P, you have blood frogs, lice, boils, and death of the firstborn. In J, you have blood frogs, swarms, pestilence, hail, locusts, and death of the firstborn. And the third row, source unknown, I'm not going to give it a name, has the account concerning darkness. I'd like to make several observations from this slide. Please note, in some cases, more than one source told of the same plague. Blood, frogs, and death of the firstborn are narrated both in P and in J. In such cases, the redactor or editor combined these sources by intertwining them. In some cases, what probably started out as a similar plague, like lice and swarms of flies, or pestilence and boils, by the time the developed P and J narrative existed, were different enough that the redactor did not need to intertwine them, which is a very cumbersome and difficult way of editing material. But they were different enough that they could be placed one after the other as separate plagues. To state this a little differently, it would be very awkward if the redactor combined the material so that a blood plague was followed by a blood plague and a frog plague was followed by a frog plague. So in those cases, they were interlaced or intertwined. While in cases such as lice and swarms of flies or pestilence and boils, the texts were different enough that they can be placed one after another rather than being combined together. This brief account of the redaction should explain something very simple that you might not have never thought about. You're probably all familiar with the Passover Haggadah, where the Haggadah is insistent that there are 10 plagues in Egypt. But now go back and read the biblical material. Why is it never narrated that there are 10 plagues? That is because this number 10 comes from the redaction of these various episodes. And the person or the people involved in the redaction did not like adding to the text, but instead liked cutting, pasting, and gluing together pre-existing texts without adding many or any words of their own. 
And since neither the P tradition nor the J tradition had 10 plagues, the word 10 is completely absent from the account in the Torah. Now, it might surprise you that I am claiming that there were different traditions in ancient Israel about the number of plagues. But I would just like to call to your attention two psalms. And here you might want to pause because I am going to go through this rather quickly. But I would just note that if you look at Psalm 105, the first plague is darkness. And I believe that there you have a list of seven plagues rather than ten plagues. And similarly, in Psalm 78, even though blood is the first plague and death of the firstborn is the last plague, you have two hail plagues, one killing agriculture and one killing various animals, and you have seven plagues rather than ten plagues. Thus, the tradition that you know of ten plagues is one of various traditions in the Hebrew Bible and is a result of the redaction or combination of various biblical texts. I'd like to pause and encourage you to think about the question of whether or not it really matters whether there are seven plagues or five plagues or ten plagues. As this and the following slide show, I don't think it really matters. Because to go back to the term that Sarna uses, the plague narrative is fundamentally didactic theological. And this is reflected in the various words that you have on this slide and what is called the leading word or repeating word, or to use the German term Leitwort, which you have on this slide, which is to know. The Hebrew word yada. Quite remarkably, the same light fort that we saw in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 concerning the tree of knowledge. The point of this unit, as you can see from the various verses that I have quoted on it, is so that the Israelites will know who is the Lord. By the Egyptians knowing who is the Lord as a result of the plagues, uh, coming against the Egyptians and the Israelites witnessing these plagues and later Israelites retelling the story. Thus, the details don't import, are not important. You learn who the Lord is from the Lord's power, whether there are five plagues or seven plagues or ten plagues. And thus, ultimately, Israel learns who is the Lord in chapters 14 and 15, after the Egyptians flay, let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting from them. And in chapter 14, verse 31, the Israelites fearing the Lord, having faith in the Lord and his servant Moses, and then sing a song in the song of the sea about the power of God and recognizing God as their king. So to summarize this particular section, I hope by now it is not a terrible surprise to you that different traditions have been combined in the plague narrative. That the 10 plagues, 
were really almost an accidental creation of the redactor or the editor. Again, it should not be surprising that Psalms does not agree with the Torah, because it might really be the case that Psalm 78 and Psalm 105 are earlier than the redacted Torah, even though they are found in a later section of the Bible. And finally, and having taught this material many times, I would like to emphasize this point because I know how committed many people are when they read the Bible to the Bible as history. I would like to suggest that the Bible is more powerful as story rather than history. And this brings me into the next section that I would like to look at very, very briefly concerning Exodus 19 and 24, a section which combines law and narrative. The law I'm going to talk about in the next module, whether the law in Exodus 20 verses 2 to 14, the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, or the law in Exodus chapter 20, 19 through 2333, laws that are called the Covenant Collection. But I hope you see from this alternation between white and blue that you have what I call a double-decker law and narrative sandwich. And if you have not yet read the introduction to Torah in the Jewish Study Bible, I urge you to do so now because one of the points that I make there is that the word Torah can mean law, but also more broadly means instruction. And I would like to suggest that instruction can take place in two different ways. It can take place through narratives and it can take place through laws. And if I have to summarize this entire module, the way I would summarize it is by saying, instruction includes narrative and biblical narrative should be understood as instruction rather than being understood as history. That's it for today. Learn more about Maya online, including how you can help a member of the armed services take our paid online courses at www.hebrewcollege.edu slash Maya online. We'd love your feedback about today's show. Email us at mayaonline at hebrewcollege.edu. If you like the show, please leave us a review in iTunes or whichever podcasting service you use to subscribe. Our music is from Gala, a 10th anniversary celebration of the Rabbinical School of Hebrew College. Thanks for listening.